Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm John McEnroe, and you're listening to the Tennis Podcast. Hi, my name is Grigor Dimitrov, and you're listening to Tennis Podcast. Hi, I'm Mats Wilander, and you are listening to the Tennis Podcast. Well, hello, and welcome to the Tennis Podcast. I'm Catherine Whitaker, a tennis broadcaster, and I'm joined by another tennis broadcaster, David Law, who has taken some time out of his busy commentary schedule for BT Sport to come and record a podcast. Thank you very much for joining me, David. I'm honoured. Oh, didn't you know? I'm off. I'm, I'm not sticking around for this. Uh, actually, no, you're right, I have. Uh, and it isn't that busy, actually. I've got about five hours to kill until uh, commentary of the final between uh, Serena Williams and Carla Suarez Navarro starts. Uh, it's kind of a bit pointless talking about it, really, if we're honest, because uh, we're going to put this out on Monday. And the final's already taken place because we're recording this on Saturday. However, there's plenty for us to be discussing. And, uh, you know, I just find it, an intriguing story, the way that Serena Williams has reached this final. More than many others of recent times, because of her injury in Indian Wells, um, her recovery from that injury, and then the fact that she had this extraordinary matchup against Simona Halep. I mean, I watched, I managed to get through the first set and a half of it, and I, I mean, it was, it was Serena Williams from Australian Open final form. And, I mean, it was just an absolute drubbing. To use Brad Gilbert terminology, it was a beatdown. She was taking her to the woodshed, things like that. Um, but things turned, and, and it ended up 7-5 in the third to Serena Williams. She just about got out of it uh, in one piece. And, and I, th- I found it just mesmerizing. Match of the year so far, many are saying, men's and women's. Would you agree with that? It was up there. Yeah, it was definitely, definitely up there, and and because it, it had a bit of everything. What what I, I love watching Serena Williams when she's pushed, and it doesn't often happen when she's playing well. That's the thing. Usually, when she plays well, it's over. It's it's a foregone conclusion, uh, to use one of our old expressions. Um, but this one was was different, and 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 the credit for that has to go to Simona Halep, and I think more than anything because she just stayed with her. She just kept going. She just accepted she's getting a pasting but refused to wilt. And most players, even Maria Sharapova, I don't think she psychologically wilts, but just the sheer force of this woman is is too much. But Simona Halep hung around long enough, kept doing what had won her Indian Wells and got her to that point and, and made a fight of it. It's fantastic. 
It was fantastic. So, yes, David has already confessed that we are recording this prior to the two uh, Miami finals, one taking place later on today, one taking place tomorrow, which probably adds a bit of extra entertainment for our listeners, doesn't it? Because we're going to look so stupid talking about these finals on Monday and potentially making predictions as to what's going to happen. And with the benefit of hindsight, we'll probably look like idiot or I certainly will because it turns out I am terrible at predictions I keep thinking go big or go home and I keep ending up going home you do don't you Uh, basically what's happened is we've formalized our predictions after three years of just um, putting out general opinions uh, uh, on the tennis podcast and and allowing you lot to keep count on who's doing better and who isn't and well frankly the the truth of the matter is neither of us are doing particularly well I wish we weren't keeping count now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, now we are keeping count on our Facebook page and on our Twitter page as well. And and I don't know what the latest is, Catherine. I just not relevant. Not relevant. It's just horrendously one-sided, isn't it? It is because I keep thinking, gosh, I've got to make up this gap, and to do that, I need to make a really big, bold prediction. And uh, the, the, the players aren't helping me out here, David. Sabine Lisicki could have helped me out a bit in the week. That was my big, bold prediction, and that didn't go particularly well. So um, I'm going to stick with my policy because uh, I've, got, I've got nowhere else to go. I'm so far behind now. Anyway, enough of my terrible predictions. More Miami chat. Serena's opponent is going to be Carla Suarez Navarro. We need to start talking about her, don't we? She's going to be in the top 10 come Monday she's fourth in the race to Singapore and she's got her favorite surface clay still lying ahead of her she's a serious serious contender on the WTA tour now isn't she well she's going to Singapore it's it's that simple now I mean as you said she's fourth in that race I know it's only April but can you possibly imagine her not going given the fact that she's got her best surface still to come I, I think if you'd done a poll of anybody who follows women's tennis um, nobody would have picked her to be getting these sort of results she's won one title in her career before and that's at a much lower level it is on clay she's only ever reached one I think one non-clay court final and this is not a flash in the pan she's been doing this stuff all year she's she reached the final in Antwerp indoors. Um, she came straight back out the week after and started winning matches in, in Dubai. And now this run in, in Miami, she's beating all sorts of players. I mean, this is, this is a fantastic run. And I, I just think it's, it's interesting that she seems to have developed this self-belief now. I, I often think that players that have been on the circuit for quite a while that it's difficult for them to then take their career to another level because they've already established who they are. They've almost established what the order is of things. And she was around there, 2017, 18 in the world. Suddenly now she's taken another step. It's a little bit like what Dominika Sibokova did just over a year ago. But then she dropped off a cliff. And actually, that is the the one question mark, I suppose. Has Carlos Suarez Navarro got it in her to keep this going? That's the big unknown I would I'd be surprised if she fell away because she just seems so physically robust she doesn't seem to even though when she had that injury in in uh, in Antwerp she, she was there again the next week she had great ability to come back but we record this ahead of the final the record against Serena Williams is horrible it's 4-0 it's 8-0 in sets she's won 10 games 
10 games in four matches. And I remember vividly the the six love, six love beating she took at the US Open a couple of years ago. It was a horrible thing to watch because Carlos Suarez Navarro was hitting nice tennis shots and just getting obliterated. So hopefully by the time you're hearing this, the, the, the final has been a little bit more competitive. But regardless, she's, she's done fantastically well. Absolutely. As much as I love a bold prediction, I'm not going to go for that bold prediction. Uh, but fantastic to see it. And a, and a great triumph for the one-handed backhand in the women's game to see her doing so well as well. It's a glory to behold, isn't it? There's a great stat I read that Serena Williams hasn't lost to a one-handed backhand since 2007. That's eight years. Okay, well, that's less of a triumph for the one-handed backhand in the women's game. You mentioned dropping off a cliff. There's a few players in the women's game who perhaps not dropped off a cliff, but are hitting a bit of a turbulent time, aren't they? Jeannie Bouchard, difficult time for her. Caroline Wozniacki, not particularly great results. And Maria Sharapova losing in her first round match in Miami to Daria Gavrilova, a wild card. Yes, she's posted some good results on the in the lower levels this year, but nonetheless, a huge shock. And now she's going onto the clay where, yes, she's had some great results in the past couple of years, but it's still not necessarily where she feels the most comfortable. And if she's going onto the clay short of confidence, that could be a problem for her. I don't think it is as long as she's fully fit. I think the big question mark is over her fitness at the moment. Um, was she 100% against Daria Gavrilova? I don't know whether she was. I don't know that she wasn't either, but she didn't look quite right to me. And um, I think we need to remove this idea from our conscience that she struggles on clay or that it's anything less of a a good surface for her than anything else that's been her most successful grand slam tournament now she's won the french open twice more than any of the other grand slams and in terms of the makeup of of looking at her physique and uh, that shouldn't be the case in my view that i would have always thought clay is going to be a weakness for somebody with that tall gangling build I only have to look at myself in the mirror and how I how uncoordinated I am it's it's a true story listeners <laughs> and I mean I can't play on any of the surfaces um, I'm quite good on the on the computer at playing those games described by Andy Roddick not so long ago as uh, hardly a gazelle speed wise around the tennis court yeah and that was that's the politest description I could come up with myself um, but you know she's shown she's shown she can do it and she can do it many times over so if she's fit she'll be fine I think now there are some players who are doing the opposite of dropping off a cliff and one of those is Sloane Stevens. really difficult time for her over the past year and a half on the court off the court people have been really slating her and her work ethic and all of that well she's having some good results isn't she she seems to be turning the ship around slowly I mean we did a prediction earlier in the week on her match against uh, Madison Keys, and I I didn't give her much of a chance in that and uh, good on you David you got that one right you're obviously seeing something in her you're obviously seeing the right signs in her how how far back on track do you think she is yeah I think she's she's right there personally I, I, I you're right I mean the, the, the previous match to the one against uh, Keys, um I, I commentated on and she was superb. She was really back to, to what we saw a couple of years ago. There was the balance, the, the, the ball striking was as, was as good as 
almost anybody and her anticipation is fantastic she can she can see where the ball's going and she sets off before it's even been struck it seems to me um the frustrating thing with her and we've seen it for for 18 months has been her lack of intensity and the fact that she seemed as though she's not that bothered you know can she really be doing with all this and maybe that's just her manner her general sort of body language that she carries around and and that's gone at least that seems to have gone the last few weeks she looks right up for it she was pumping herself up she was getting into it and the bit, the other thing is, Madison Keys isn't right at the moment. She's she had an injury in Australia, and I think it's very easy for us to, to and and more specifically for you, to have seen the results in Australia and think, ah, oh, she's going to wipe the floor with Sloane Stevens. To listen to Brad Gilbert saying that she's going to be world number one within two and a half, three years, which I don't, I don't actually disagree with. I mean, may maybe not quite that soon, but I think she is number one in the world material. Uh, Madison Keys just because of her raw ability and her raw ball striking power there's nothing else like it in the world her I, I, I asked the other day who can hit the ball hardest out of her Serena Williams and um, Sabina Lezicki and everybody came back and said Keys and, and that it had even been proven and I think I think I remember that too and, and I'd say that's probably about right she is just capable of overwhelming players and, and when Serena Williams eventually goes I would have thought Madison Keys is perfectly placed to pick up the baton from her. But she's struggling physically. She's got this muscle, muscle pull at the moment um, that she had in Australia that she hasn't quite got, got back to, to form with yet. I guess she may even be struggling a little bit with the, the expectation herself now. This is her uh, sophomore year, they call it in the States, don't they? And the sophomore slump. David is morphing into Brad Gilbert before our eyes. It was a terrible mistake for me to invite him onto the podcast, wasn't it? What has happened to you, David? Yes, I'm a sophomore. I'm on a sophomore slump, and I need some popcorn to get out of it. That's basically what I'm saying. Um, but it just seemed to me that Sloane Stevens was was ready for that match, and she she proved it, Catherine. Absolutely right. She proved you right, and I hate her for it. Somebody else that's a fan of Madison Keys, I wanted to mention this, is Andy Murray, because he's done an interview with um, Rolling Stone, and he was asked about uh, who he likes to watch on the tennis court. And he, he said, uh, I'm not entirely sure how the question was phrased, but he said, look, I like watching men and women equally. I don't see it as men's tennis, women's tennis. And then the players that he actually picked out and named that he particularly enjoys watching, Serena Williams, Agnieszka Radvanska, Madison Keys. Um, he said he loved watching her matches at the Australian Open. I just want to thank Andy Murray, really, for being such a wonderful ambassador for women's tennis, because you and I both know, without naming any names, that there are lots of men's tennis players that aren't particularly... that are a little bit dismissive of women's tennis still in this day and age. You know, it's a macho, it's a macho sort of game, and... Um, I think it's great that he is the ambassador that he is for women's tennis. And he's not trying to take a po make a point. He just genuinely enjoys it, and he's happy to make that point to anybody that wants to speak to him about it. Yeah, it's, it is, I think it's just pleasing that he has that view and that he's not afraid to express it. Because, as you say, I mean, it would be very easy in a, a locker room environment to, to say something different because... That might be the cool thing to say or the accepted thing to say, and 
Murray just says what he thinks. And, um, yeah, he loves, he loves watching tennis and he loves sort of talking about sport and women's sport, men's sport. Who cares which gender it is that he's talking about? And it's a no-brainer to us, but as we know, you know, there's, there's still a lot of work to do, I think, with attitudes towards women's tennis. And I think Andy Murray is helping with that cause, and I wanted to mention that. And it's also a beautiful segue into talking about uh, Andy Murray. Uh, well, you just picked up your own segue. I have picked up my own segue. <laughs> Moving swiftly on, Andy Murray, he's had a good old week in Miami, isn't he? He loves... Miami. He lives there. He said in his, uh, or he spent, certainly spends a lot of time there. He said in his press conference after um, comprehensively beating Thomas Burdick yesterday that he understands the courts and the way the courts react to the ball in a way that other people don't, just because of the amount of time he spends on them, how comfortable he is in the conditions there. He loves the humidity. It's showing, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Uh, I, I was there um, two years ago commentating on the, the finally won against David Ferrer, and it was one of the most brutal three-set matches I've ever seen. David Ferrer cramped in that match and actually fell over with cramp. I never thought I'd see that in my life. Um, but I remember also being there in 2009 when he won the title, beating Djokovic in the final. So he loves the place. I mean, I've seen it many times over and how comfortable he feels out there. Now, obviously, once once again, I should say that we're recording this ahead of the the Djokovic Murray final, so you will know the results by the time uh, by the time you hear this. Um, I I just find it fascinating because he hasn't beaten Novak Djokovic since winning Wimbledon since well, it's nearly two years now, isn't it? And he's taken a, a number of beatings, and it was a particularly um, heavy defeat when he played him at, uh, at Indian Wells um, just a couple of weeks ago. So this is a big, a big match in terms of make, trying to make a statement. Now, whether he's done it this time or whether he does it soon, he needs to do it soon, I think, to make the next step in his career. I think, I think he's very close now to where he was in 2013 when he was having Grand Slam success, when he was absolutely at the peak of his powers, Andy Murray. He beat Novak Djokovic in the US Open finally, narrowly lost to him in the Australian Open final. Then he beat him at Wimbledon. Now, Djokovic is a different animal from that Wimbledon final. He has proven that. And you have to give Boris Becker some credit for that, I think, as well. He came on board. So Andy Murray's playing a different animal, and Andy Murray's level sunk. Obviously, back surgery... Uh, impacted as well but if you look at the two years 2013 and this year Australian Open finals getting to the final of Miami same as he did in in 2013 as well so he's on the right track he's doing now what he was doing back then but he needs to beat Djokovic soon I would actually say that I think just him as an individual regardless of opponent I think he is pretty much back at that level I really like the look of the tennis he's playing problem is I think Djokovic is better I think he needs to to be to beat Djokovic and to maybe start more regularly beating Djokovic, not just as a one-off. He now needs to be better than he was in 2013, and I I think that's possible, but he's not there yet. But I I think he's either there at 2013 level or extremely close. But Djokovic is just he's action man. He's um, which which of the Avengers was he compared to on Twitter this week? Wasn't it? Mr. Fantastic or something like that from a, the Fantastic Four, that, that really elastic bloke. You've got kids, so you know superheroes better than I do. But he 
is he's on for the Miami Indian Wells double. We're coming up to that awkward part of the show where I might be asking you for a prediction for a match that will have already happened by the time that people listen to this. Am I going to be that cruel? Yes, I am, David. Who's going to win? Well, you've got to say Djokovic. I mean, the, on paper, he is he beats him every time, and the, the big the big question mark is how how much this is in Andy Murray's head as well. I mean. Andy was very quick to say, look, it's not always down to me, you know. This guy is the world number one. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This edition of the Tennis Podcast is sponsored by Tennis Channel, and Tennis Channel Plus is the place to watch the French Open. They've got every court live, and you can watch on your phone or on your smart TV in HD. Sounds great. There's genuinely nothing I like more than watching multiple courts with matches everywhere. And can I just sit and watch court shows in Longland all day? You sure can, David. Wherever the stories are, the rivalries emerge and the generations clash, you can watch it all with daily live coverage beginning on Monday, May the 20th. Be there when it happens by subscribing to Tennis Channel Plus to stream daily coverage of Roland Garros. Use promo code TENNISPOD20 for 20% off your annual subscription. One for a reason, he's a brilliant player, and it's not easy to try to beat him. It's a nightmare trying to beat the guy, especially now. He's he's at the best he's ever been, or at least as good as he was in 2011 when he won all those all those titles and 40 odd matches in a row. So you've got to say Djokovic. I think unless you, otherwise you're just going on hunch, you're just going on feeling, which and, I love to do, as well, you know. <laughs> yeah, you do. Um, I I get that. Uh, but I also think back a couple of months when we were all saying, oh, you know, look, he, he's going to win this Australian Open finally. You know, I, I've got a feeling and everybody started to tell everybody else and everybody started to, to kind of give each other confidence in their own views. And But then when you look at it on black and white on the paper, of course Djokovic is the favourite. Anytime these two play, until things change, Murray needs to change this. He needs to find a way to wrestle control back of that rivalry or at least or at least become uh, the doubt in it. Of course, you're right, David, of course. There's, there's nowhere else, if you're a sensible uh, betting man, which I'm not, neither sensible nor a man, uh, you'd, of course, go with Djokovic. However, uh, we do have a colleague that said not so long ago, I don't think Murray will ever beat Djokovic again. I think both you and I probably are on the side of disagreeing with that, that he will beat him again. And if he's going to do that, is there going to be much of a better chance with him for him than this match on 
he considers it his turf, Miami. It, we've talked about how much the conditions there suit him. Is this going to be one of his best chances to beat Djokovic if he is to do that? Um, it's it's a chance. I think he would have a very good chance if they played each other at Wimbledon again as well. Um, I think there's loads of places that Andy Murray feels very at home. The, the problem is Djokovic also feels at home on every surface. He's the, he's the ultimate all-rounder. There is no weak surface for Novak Djokovic. You can put him on grass. He's won Wimbledon twice. You can put him indoors. Apart from Roger Federer at his peak, probably as good an indoor player as anybody in the world and one of the best ever. Um, he's won the Australian Open countless times. He, he, he's not won the French Open yet, but just imagine how many times he would have won it if Rafael Nadal didn't exist. I know that's a ridiculous statement, but you know, you know what I'm saying. He's perfectly at home on everything, Novak Djokovic. So I think, particularly given the uh, final has already happened, I tend to look more broadly at it. And certainly Miami's is a little bit like home territory for Murray, but... You know, Djokovic is an amazing player. And how about Rafa? Bad Miami for him. I know we're trying not to react too much to Rafa's losses because, frankly, as everybody is saying, the real test will we'll reserve our judgments until we see him on the clay. However, losing to a player like Fernando Vidasco, who is essentially, without doing a disservice to Vidasco, who's a sensational player, he's sort of Rafa light, isn't he? He's, he's got Rafa's game, but just not quite as good. A bit like David Ferrer. He's not somebody that Rafa should be losing to, I don't think. He's not somebody I would have expected to beat him, certainly. Um, I, I, I think that Rafa needs the clay court season as much as he's ever needed it in terms of confidence building. He needs to just play a million tennis balls in match conditions and win tennis matches and just be the dominant force again, both for his own sake in, in, psychologically and for the psychology and approach of his opponents. They need to look at him once more and think, oh my word, how am I going to beat this? It's interesting, isn't it? He's confessed this week, uh, following his loss to Vidasco, that he's really suffering from nerves out there. And, and that's obviously um, a byproduct of, of a lack of confidence. But I find that a very interesting thing. I, I don't think people were necessarily expecting him to confess to something like that, that he really is feeling the tension in the big moments out on the tennis court. And that's, you know, not in a Grand Slam scenario. That's just out there in Miami or Indian Wells or wherever he is. He is feeling a lot of tension. Well, Raf is interesting in that he does admit his um, feelings of fragility or his... And we often say, oh, here he goes again. He's, he's doing down his own chances and so forth. But you know what? Maybe he's just being honest and, and that should be celebrated, I think, in our profession and certainly for listeners and viewers who want to have some sort of insight into what these tennis players go through. Um, I... I just think he's going to come again and I have total confidence in him. I mean, I know it's, yeah, he's had a couple of, a couple of he's had a bad result there really against Vidasco, but you've also got to give Vidasco a bit of credit there. He's a, he's a tough player when he's on. I remember a year ago, everybody started to draw the conclusions that Djokovic was now the superior player on clay. I remember two years ago when he beat Rafa in Monte Carlo and ended his reign there and everybody was saying, ah, you know, now he's, he's got him now. I think Djokovic has got the best chance he's had yet, but I'd still make Rafa the favourite for the French. So many eyes on Rafa at Monte Carlo, aren't there? Such a 
so much pressure on him to because everybody has been saying for months now since he came back, well, we'll reserve judgment till he's on the clay. Well, he's going to be on the clay in Monte yeah, Carlo. But, but you know what? He just takes, he genuinely just takes it one ball at a time. I know that it's the ultimate cliche, but with him, I believe it. I don't oh, I do too. But for us, for us who make a living out of talking about it, we're excited about seeing him on the clay, aren't we? We, we are, but in terms of pressure, I don't think he feels it really not really I think he might talk about it in that way but I think he's able to just strip away the layers of what everybody else thinks and focus on that little furry tennis ball and hitting it over a net it's actually quite simple when you think about it look how good I am (laughs) I am not going to say anything to that I'm just going to move on now we have to our big topic this week is on-court coaching but just quickly uh, we're going to have a self-indulgent little chat about Grigor Dimitrov, because I did say, following his loss to John Isner on Twitter earlier this week, that we needed to host Crisis Talks on the latest podcast, because I I was worried about the nature of that defeat, because I watched the first set and I thought, well, he looks great. He looks absolutely, you know, you just can't fault his level of tennis. And then it came to the big moments and he didn't have it. And that's the story of his career so far, isn't it? We know he's good. We know he can produce incredible tennis shots. We know what he's capable of. But in the big moments, he doesn't have it. And uh, that that match against John Isner encapsulated a Grigor Dimitrov that I thought was behind us. Discuss, David. Well, I certainly don't think it's the story of his career. I think it's the story of his year. Uh, so far Um, I think he won Queens last year he reached the final of Wimbledon beating Andy the semi-finals of Wimbledon beating Andy Murray along the way I do think that you know he will look at not taking it into a fifth with Djokovic and not um, not finding a way to take it into a fifth with Murray at the Australian this year as moments that he would really regret Um, but well I don't. Whereas I've just been talking about pressure with Nadal, I think it's more the bigger issue with tennis players is confidence and confidence um, in those tight moments. And how do you get confidence? That's that's um, and it's probably different for every single human being in their different walk of life. But I I would say with him, he's he's almost needs grass as much as Rafa needs clay. It's the problem is it's doesn't last as long um he just needs to feel confident again i i would guess i'm only guessing because i don't know the guy that well i haven't spoken to him um but that's what it looks like to me he just needs to win a few matches again and um and because i know that there are i don't know what the question marks over are over with his racket whether he's changing that and all that kind of thing um i've I've read about that a, a little bit but you know just needs to win some matches and feel good again we certainly can't wait to see him on the grass at Queen's again, can we? Uh, now our talking point for this week, on-court coaching. Uh, it's come under the spotlight, uh, come into the spotlight um, on a few occasions in the past few weeks, so it feels like an apt time to be talking about it. Um, we've opened it up to, to Twitter debate as well, and um, feeling seems to be pretty evenly split on both sides. For me, the issue we have at the moment is a complete imbalance, both in men's versus women's and in terms of the fact that you don't have it at the Grand Slams. I'm going to set my stall out there. I think it's great. I probably would have had reservations before it was introduced. I'm not sure I would have been entirely in favour of it at the time that it was being discussed. But now I've seen it. I think it's great. However, I don't enjoy 
the inconsistency that we have around it in the sport at the moment. I think we need it. If we're going to have it, which we do now, I think that Rubicon has been crossed. We need to have it across the board. How do you feel, David? Yeah, I mean, I, I suppose I, I feel slightly influenced by the fact that I just don't think that's going to happen. So as a result of it, I've, it's probably influences my conviction in arguing for it to some degree. But actually, I, and I, I have the same problem with the, the lack of consistency across the board as well. It seems strange in a way to have it for, for part of the tennis world and not for the rest of it. Um, and even part of the, the tennis world within, within the same gender. Occasionally we have it, and then the slams we don't. It, it, it doesn't seem quite quite right in that way, but I understand why. But I like it. I, I and a lot of people don't. A lot of people don't. A lot of people argue that it should be one-on-one combat, and and that individuality is part of the the process. For me, in boxing, you go back to the corner after the end of the, every round. You get a bit of advice. You know, you have half time in football. You, you know, you have little huddles in cricket. Every other sport, you have the ability to call on somebody to talk it through with. And for me, within tennis, what it does is it it, it takes away the foregone conclusion element of a match. Sometimes now you might say, well, that's part of the problem solving that you want to have in tennis, but. I quite like the fact that you can change the course of a match by tapping into something mentally that you haven't thought of or strategically. And aside from anything else, it's fantastic entertainment, isn't it? For the viewer at home, if you're somebody that's associated with um, the marketing, the PR of tennis, which we occasionally are, it gets people interested. And, and I mean, yes, you, you've got to have limits on what's feasible in tennis you can't do anything you like for the sake of entertainment but I don't think this is that much of an encroachment encroachment on the fundamentals of the game I don't really think it's any encroachment in practice and it is fantastically entertaining I mean less so if they're speaking in Russian or something that we don't understand but if they're speaking in English and you know it's picked up on the microphone it can be absolutely fascinating can't it I mean listen who doesn't like to eavesdrop on other people's conversations? Let's be honest. I know that's a terrible thing to say, but it's true. For instance, I'm sitting here right now, and there's a chap behind me on the phone. You can just about hear him. He's a, he's a guest on our podcast this week. He just doesn't know it. Don't you want to know what he's saying right now? And if he were, <laughs> if he was mic'd up, we would know. <laughs> but um, the fact is that... Yeah, uh, there, there's a bit more from that gentleman. I, I mean, I think I think that that uh, that it is fascinating, and, and you also see inside the psyche of of these tennis players and what they're going through. Yankovic the other the other week, just seeing how much the stress was getting to her, and 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 the internally built stress of how do I get my serve going? How do I get my game going? It, you know, and and the way they're trying to just. Uh, assist with that process from from the outside. I, I think it's great fun. In terms of what people on Twitter have been saying to us, a few interactions here. Laurie, at LaurieMac123 says, yes to on-court coaching. Makes the point that it's the norm in other similar individual sports. Uh, Gives the example of squash. David's given the example of boxing. And it's great for the fans to watch too, which I think we'd agree with. Uh, Kyle Taylor, K Taylor K, says, yes to on-court coaching. Provides a great insight to the game and brings out the best in the play. 
um, somebody, Scott Ferguson, is proposing that you introduce it on the men's tour, but only when the opponent, you're only able to call your coach when the opponent leaves the court for an injury or toilet break. Uh, and that way it would act in a deterrent for time-wasting gamesmanship. I see the problem you're trying to solve there, Scott. However, I, I just don't think that's fair. It would essentially be a punishment for having to take an injury timeout or a punishment for needing the toilet. And I, and I think that's probably not the way it would be best used. Although I, although I do know many people who feel that punishment should be given out, or at least um, you should have to buy in some way an injury or a toilet break or something like that you know in order to get that time off absolutely there's, there's certainly an issue there which could be looked at i'm just uh, i'm perhaps disagreeing with whether that's the best way to solve it but anyway an interesting point uh kevin mitchell guardian tennis correspondent has been in touch so i think in general he's uh not in favor however he does make the point of how fantastic it is during davis cup to see the coaches on the court and the impact it can have. I mean, look at James Ward against John Isner. We don't know what would have happened had he not had Leon Smith by the side of the court, but I suspect it helped. Yeah, and I I think ultimately the main reason that people don't want these changes is probably just because they're just not used to it, really. And they... um, uh, Most people don't want change. Most people are used to how it is and think that that we should just carry on as before. But I don't really see why you wouldn't have have on-court coaching. I just think the big problem is if you don't have it across the board because I think people are confused watching. I I think most people are thinking, well, hold on, why why have they just come onto the court? That That didn't happen last week. Ali, at emerald underscore 229, makes the point that uh, he or she... Can't, I can't tell what gender you are, Ali, so I apologise, but likes hearing the coaches talking tactics. However, says it makes the women look bad when they have it and the men don't. Well, I understand what you're saying there. I don't agree. I don't think it makes the women look bad. However, it is a stick that's used to beat women's tennis, isn't it? That it, If people want to do down women's tennis, they'll say, well, look, you know, it's a sign of mental weakness that they require coaches on the court and look the men don't I don't agree with that you know, at I, all that has never ever occurred to me that that is a, a, something that could be leveled at the women's circuit I, that had never occurred to me before well I'm glad to hear that and I, I I certainly don't endorse that view however I have heard it expressed so I understand where you're coming at that from and several other people uh ben o'driscoll corbin one just making the point that it's it's a pure individual sport um on-court coaching would negate the importance of an individual psychology it should be all on the players and not on the coaches and also uh corbin c wong does make the point that um shouldn't be allowed because it shows how strong the players are who never call their coaches for example serena however but that's a tactic in itself isn't it it's like hawkeye you know, when, when Hawkeye first came out, Roger Federer barely ever used it. He was so disdainful of it. He's so perfect and, and you know, he doesn't need technology to help him win a tennis match. He's, he's got it all within himself. That's a ta- that was a Hawkeye tactic in itself, you know, not calling the coach. That, that's a whole extra dimension to it. How is that a Hawkeye tactic? I don't understand that. Well, it, it, was, it was an interesting insight into his psychology, I think, that he didn't... He didn't deem Hawkeye worthy. <laughs> Is that what you think it was because of? I think he was. I think he was disdainful of it. Yeah. 
Okay. Well, I do, I do find it fascinating that Serena Williams is still the overwhelming best player in the world and she doesn't even use it. Exactly. But that's fantastic, isn't it? It's, it's so fascinating. I just think it adds this extra dimension, which is undeniably interesting for the viewer. But I agree there's this huge barrier to being entertained by it at the moment. If I think a casual tennis viewer switches on and, they, and as you say, they just think, well, hang on, what's going on here? Andy Murray never has Emily Moresmo on court and Novak Djokovic doesn't have Boris Becker on court and the women don't have their coaches on court during the Grand Slams. What am I watching here? Is this some sort of special exhibition event or, you know, a one-off? Um, so I call for consistency, but as you say, might not happen not that people don't listen to us in the tennis world. I mean, obviously, we hold loads of sway, don't well, we, David? Catherine, if we say right now this needs to happen, it will happen. <laughs> That's just how the world works. We are, <laughs> we are the opinion leaders in the tennis world. Not. Um, David has to go off and do some commentary prep, don't you, David? Uh, yes, I have to go and sit and watch tennis and talk about it. I mean, it's a hard life, isn't it? a terribly hard life um it's been an absolute pleasure david thank you for joining me it's been good isn't it i will be back from monte carlo next oh, week here we go. i know rubbing it in and i will have a special guest tbc but it won't be you david i'm very sorry to tell you i thought you were going to say <laughs> delighted to say that it won't be you uh, which is what she actually means by that comment uh, but yes um it, it, you've got a bit of a road trip coming up really haven't you i have i'm doing the European clay court swing as they call it and that means the tennis podcast will be doing the European clay court swing as well so you've got that to look forward to unfortunately David won't be but he'll be (laughs) joining us again soon won't you David yeah I will yes bye and I'll be joining you from Monte Carlo next week thanks for listening up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 